Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Are you a parent with a child that snores or maybe stops breathing for a little bit of time? Or maybe your child just breathes through their mouth at night. These are relatively common phenomenon for some families and they are often things that get overlooked in our youngest members of the house. This week, I get to talk to pediatric ENT, Dr. David McIntosh, who specializes in sleep disordered breathing in children. And what he has to say may surprise you because these are not things that should be ignored, but rather things that we need to take quite seriously. So please join me as I welcome Dr. McIntosh for a fuller discussion of why you need to care about your child's sleep disordered breathing. All right, I am so excited to have with me today Dr. David McIntosh. He is a researcher, PhD, doctor, surgeon, ear, nose, and throat specialist, lecturer, philanthropist, fitness enthusiast, and as he would like you to know, and as I'm sure it will be apparent, an all-around nice guy. He is also the author of the book Snored to Death, which was released last year and was written to directly help health professionals and parents alike understand the importance of sleep disordered breathing and what can be done about it. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. McIntosh. It's a pleasure, Tracy. Thank you. So before we get into the details about sleep disordered breathing, what to look for, what families can do, I want to hear about how you got into this in the first place, because this is not a common thing that you see little kids saying, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. Yeah, no, no. Most people don't grow up wanting to look at snot all day. You're quite right. (laughs) So uh, my, my, my initial sort of background when I was at university and to pay the bills was that I was working with children, but that was in the context of teaching them how to swim. And you have to overcome their anxieties and their fears, and that helps you build some pretty good uh, kid skills, which was kind of handy when you do ENT, which is a huge specialty, because when you do pediatrics uh, in a similar situation, they don't really want to be going to see the doctor, so you've got to find ways to get around that. So th- those skills came in handy. Plus, uh, with the PhD, um, what I realized in doing that is that it was a a lot that I was being taught that the the science and the research that was more contemporary uh, was actually refuting some of the the, the teachings. So what I realized from that was the importance of having to keep up to date and not letting your education get in the way of your knowledge. And the other thing that came along was that uh, we had an Australian ENT surgeon that went over to Stanford in the very early days of sleep apnea surgery for adults. And he brought back a lot of uh, new and novel information uh, and approaches to uh, the management of adult obstructive sleep apnea, which we all benefited from. Uh, And again, just just goes to show that you you do need to be progressive and, and moving forwards. So that was sort of the, the things that all just came together for um, the, the working with kids, the exposure to a, a different paradigm of obstructive sleep apnea in adults, and also the science and research and knowing how to sort of read it and find it and uh, recognising the importance of keeping up to date with it because um, the reality is that there's something new around the corner and unless you keep yourself um, you know, abreast of those things, you, you start to fall behind. So. That, that sort of hurdle sort of came together. 
You know, it's interesting to hear you say that about things, you know, needing to be kept up to date, because I think this is one of the struggles that comes up so much for families, because the area you're in is such a specialty and pretty much a new one in many ways, that they face doctors that are resistant to the idea of something being wrong with their breathing, with their child's breathing in particular. And so it gets dismissed very quickly. So that's something I definitely want to talk more about, about how can they do that. But I mean, before we turn towards that, I was actually curious, can you tell people, because I think, you know, in line with that, with doctors dismissing it, parents often dismiss the idea of sleep disordered breathing because it's unknown, because so many people say, oh, don't worry about it. They grow out of it. Oh, your kid snores. Oh, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Um, I think people need to know why they should care before knowing what to look for. Why should they even, I mean, what are the problems here? Because... I don't know. I think it sounds, you know, you said snore to death in your book, which seems quite dramatic. Um, so I, I think I could see a lot of families kind of going, well, you know, yeah, so my kid snores a bit. What's the big deal? My husband snores. I might snore. All these things get dismissed as not being as important as perhaps I think as you would tell us they actually are. Yeah. And look, the, the bigger picture as to why this is a problem is because um, all of this is, relates to around um, the issues of sleep. And when you look at uh, the, sort of the, the broad pillars of health and wellness, broadly speaking, there's four of them. Um, and the ones that people sort of focus on and get uh, hung up about um, is diet uh, and, and exercise. Uh, and you only need to jump onto Instagram to see just how prolific um, the focus on those two things are. The third thing um, that sort of people kind of get is your mental wellness. So you have your, your physical wellness from your exercise and, 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 and your diet, and then you have your mental wellness. And the fourth thing that is absolutely relegated to the whatever basket, I'll get around to it, is sleep. And we, we have unfortunately... Uh, benefited in, in many respects uh, from the, the invention of electricity, but also then it's been to our detriment when it comes to the particular thing of sleep. And that is because of the artificial lighting and then the technology and the communications and so forth that have evolved, um, initially television, and then as we know, the internet. And then, the, um, in fact, now that I'm talking to you two on, on a little black box, it's got more technology in it than what they had when they sent the you know, rocket to the moon. Um, so, so, you know, we, we, we can't be disparaging about what we've got, but we've got to be realistic about the fact that every benefit comes with a consequence. And the, the consequence of this is that the thing that biologically we would just have done naturally because the sun went down and our brain basically said, ah, oh, that's it, we're done. You know, maybe there was a campfire or here or there, but in the main state, uh, the brain was saying, right, that's shutdown time. A lot of those messages and signals are lost. And then we um, get around those problems because rather than waking up naturally with a, the dawn of light, now we have alarm clocks yeah. and, and so forth. So uh, sleep basically is something that basically now for many people is something that they initiate when everything else is done and they resolve when the alarm tells them that that's what they have to do. So we live in an artificial construct when it comes to sleep. So that's, that's the first problem. And then what people are 
quite oblivious to um, is that there are a, a, a numerous number of sleep disorders. Um, and it, it's not just this sleep disordered breathing, or that is the most common. Um, there, there are many other sleep disorders. So the fact that, you know, sleep uh, can have uh, disease related to it is, is again, a, a foreign concept. So I think you've got to be, we've got to be realistic as to what we can expect of people. We can't expect them to know what they don't know. Um, and, and what we need to do is just draw people's attention to it. And, and it was, you know, it's slowly getting there, um, you know, but the, you know, the area where it, it's, it's, it's quite prominent, where, where people do get it, um, you know, that I see is in the field again of um, exercise in, in, in sporting teams, for example. Um, you know, some of the biggest sports teams in the world that have got budgets of, of, of innumerable millions and sometimes billions of dollars behind them have sleep consultants on their on their panel. Really? They, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are plenty of the, 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 the um, uh, European soccer teams, some of your American uh, football teams, uh, both um, NFL uh, level and, and state. Um, have sleep consultants, people that they consult and say, look, you know, what do we need to do um, about uh, our team, our players, you know, um, and so forth? Because, um, you know, these, the, the, those people are very valuable, um, you know, to the team, um, not just as, as, as individuals and players, but let's be honest, financially, uh, we, we're talking some serious money. So, um, they will have, you know, the best of everything. They'll have the best of gyms. They'll have the dietitians. They'll have the sports psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they'll have the sports dietitians, the sports trainers. So there's three out of those four pillars of health that I mentioned in a professional athlete level. And they've got the sleep consultants on board now too because they realise that's an important part of it. So why should the general parent walking around the street be worried about breathing and sleep? Uh, because their favourite sporting team slash uh, quarterback slash um, whatever you want to nominate, sporting-wise, um, you know, pitcher, whatever, because those teams are putting money into professional adult sleep behaviours and structures and making sure that the um, adults, uh, you know, in the room uh, are sleeping properly um, and directing them to, to, you know, making corrections to things that they may be doing wrong because they want the best performance out of their athletes. And I would like to think that most parents want the best out of what their children can be. They want their children to reach their full potential. Yeah. You know, not, not, every, not every child is going to be the doctor, not every child is going to be the lawyer and so on and so forth. And, and that's, that's a, actually a good thing because we don't want everyone to be the doctor. We, want everyone to be the doctor. We, we need a spectrum of things and we are all very different individuals, but that also means we have individual capabilities and individual potentials. And having uh, breathing problems and sleep problems uh, in the early stages of, of development has, has lifelong consequences. So getting it right early uh, is, is, is crucial to basically what comes afterwards. I want to add just a little thing for readers listening, because there is a bit of a, a, 
a push in infancy to talk about problematic sleep. And I want to specify that I think we're talking about two different things here when we're talking about the type of quality sleep that you're talking about, especially as we're talking about lights and we'll get to sleep disordered breathing versus parents being told, oh, no, no, your kid just needs to sleep eight hours straight at, you know, three months of age and shut them in a room and lock the door and walk away. And that's your solution. Uh, Because that's not actually addressing, I think, what we're going to be talking about in terms of ways to help with sleep. We're not talking about unrealistic constructs for young babies. We're not talking about behaviorist methods that don't actually affect these environmental changes that we've had with respect to how we sleep and where we sleep and all these other factors that go into it. So I don't want people getting confused here. This isn't saying that, you know, when someone tells you to lock the door on your baby and come back 12 hours later, that's actually going to fix the effect of artificial light, sleep disordered breathing, everything else like that. So just a little caveat there for those listening. So let's get into um, the various types of sleep disordered breathing, because that's kind of the specialty and where a lot of things get lost. Um, So in so many ways, I know there are parents that don't know what to look for. They don't know if their baby has a problem. And we're talking babies and older children. Um, So I would love to hear, I'm going to go through kind of the list here. And I'd love to hear for each one what what is the concern? What is it indicative of? Um, what parents should be looking for if it's not obvious? And what what on earth should parents be doing about this? You know, who can they go see? What is the types of treatments? What ages do they work for? Because this is another area that I hear coming up. So I'm going to start with the first one with your book, which is snoring. So what do you do when you have a kid that snores? Why? And obviously, probably not when they have a cold, because we all know our kids tend to snore when they have a cold. But um, outside of that moment, what what is going on with our kids when that happens? Okay. So snoring is a noise that's made for essentially one of two reasons. Uh, the most common reason is because there's something blocking uh, the airflow through the tubes that the air is supposed to flow through. So that's, that, that's bad. Uh, the second reason is there may be something as, as part of the tube that is shaking and vibrating um, in response to the airflow. And that means that the airflow is not clean. It's turbulent. And again, that's a problem. And um, the um, issue basically with snoring, as I say to parents, is that um, that's a sign that your child's not breathing properly. And if you think that it would be okay for, as I say in the book, if you think it would be okay for someone uh, to walk into your child's room every night and physically choke them, not to the point that they kill them, but physically choke them every night, There's not many parents opening the front door and yelling out the street, come in and choke my kid. But snoring is the same thing. It's just that the child is doing it to themselves. There is actually the only difference is where the physical act of choking takes place. It's internal choking versus external choking. That's the only difference. Never thought of it that way. That is actually kind of horrifying to think about that. That's what's happening. Yeah. this is why I, I, I put that out there as, as an analogy, um, because the reality is we, we need to get a psychological response. You know, we can have intellectual contemplation about things, but to do that, there needs to be a reason for it. Um, and it can be because, of, oh, that sounded interesting or it's just like that sounded terrible. Um, and the way our brains work um, is sometimes the terrible things stick and, and make a bigger difference than the interesting things do. 
So um, that, that's why I, I put that there is to be very, very transparent. So that, you know, and, and we'll progress to, to what you're asking about, but, you know, just to, to sort of continue the thing. Because then parents will go, you know, if they're sort of on board, they go, well, you know, when, when should we get this fixed? And I say, well, when would you tell the person to stop to- choking your child? Would you, would, you, would you say, oh, we'll get around to it. Um, well, is, is, can we do it, you know, on the holidays? So uh, which part of this is now a priority? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's just, just to put it all, you know, very bluntly and very in your face into context. Um, that, that is basically the scenario that we're talking about um, in, in the big scheme of things. I, you know, it's still shocked um, at thinking about that, but I will, you know, I've heard, I want to counter because not counter you because I want you to counter this of the things that I've heard because I've heard so many, you know, kind of rebuttals of, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, all babies snore to a certain degree or, you know, oh, it's just a minor snoring. It's not too loud. So don't worry about it. Is that true? Are there levels of snoring that we don't worry about? Um, or Yep. So when, I, when this question comes up and it often comes up when I'm doing my lecturing and so forth. Um, what I then go and, and, and again, it, it helps to sort of think about analogies. And again, some of these analogies are confronting, but um, it, it's for a deliberate intention and purpose because of all of a sudden it makes sense. So um, let's talk about now. Now what we're going to do, Tracy, is I'm going to come and stand behind you. Okay. And I'm going to put my arm around your neck. I'm going to start choking you. Okay. Um, now, if I choke you a little bit, you'll be able to yell and scream. If I choke you a lot, you won't make a sound. Yeah. Okay. So what, what that highlights is that all noisy breathing is obstructed, but not all obstructed breathing is noisy. So the, oh, they snore, but it's not very loud. That can be one of two things. That can be a very minor obstruction, which is still pathological. Okay. Or it could be a significantly major obstruction. That is. And they're so obstructed, they're shifting so little air that they're, they're, they're barely breathing enough to even make a snoring noise. So the, 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 the volume or the intensity of the snoring is not indicative any way or the other way or the other of severity whatsoever. And, and the thing is, and we'll come to obviously other aspects of sleep distorted breathing, um, they don't even need to be snoring. Like they could just be mouth breathing and that is enough to put them into the pathological realm of things. That's The other one that you, yeah, that you asked me about was oh, all babies snore. Uh, again, this goes back to what you were saying before. What we're talking about here is something that is consistent and persistent. Yeah. We're not talking about a little snuffle or a little you know, you know, snore here and there. Um, we're talking about something where you put the baby down, put the child down, put the adolescent down, the adult puts themselves down. And at least four nights of the week, um, they're making some sort of, um, you know, breathing noise, could be heavy breathing, could be snoring, um, or they're having trouble uh, to the point that um, they are you know, stopping breathing or they're simply mouth breathing. Um, you know, any sort of these pathological breathing patterns um, is then an issue for the consequences that follow on from that being the case. Okay. So that 
does answer it. And so now comes the question of, okay, so we've got snoring. Let's actually go through the few before we go to what people should do. I'd like to go over some of these others. Cause you brought up the next one I was going to ask about, which is mouth breathing. And I know, you know, especially in infancy, I'm very clear with families I work with that that's a big no-go because they naturally breathe through their nose. And that is not, you know, it, it doesn't work for them to breathe through their mouth, especially with feeding and breastfeeding and everything. They can't do that. Um, so what, you know, there's also a, a caveat that I hear a lot is, well, my kid's mouth is open, but I don't know if their mouth breathing and, mm -hmm. or they mix They're sometimes mouth breathing and sometimes nose breathing. What, Again, it, why is it bad outside of getting a dry mouth when your mouth is open? Um, is it mm -hmm. so bad for later development to be breathing through your mouth either partially or at all? And is it dangerous to just have your mouth open even if you're breathing through your nose? Sure. So again, um, you know, what, what, what I go back to um, again is let's talk about the sporting field and arena. Um, let's talk about this thing called yoga been around for a couple of hundred years it's it's not not that new or novel uh, and and those that have done it will know that their instructor is saying breathe through your nose breathe through your nose breathe through your nose close your mouth breathe through your nose yeah. so there must be something to that because that, that things don't hang around for over 100 years um, you know plus if that's the case and then you go further back in history and then you go to um to china and you look at tai chi and it's the same thing and then you look at to so the prelude to, to tai chi which is qigong um, and it's the same thing. Um, and Qigong is, the, you know, a couple of thousand years um, in the making, um, probably. So, again, there's something there that's important. More contemporary, um, again, is the sporting arena. Um, the, the, again, the, the exercise physiology team that, that's on, on board with these professional sporting teams. Um, and certainly, um, and I know this from, from personal experience, um, um, in terms of uh, Olympic athletes, uh, is, is that they, uh, you know, they get assessed from a breathing point of view in terms of what their nose is like. Um, for those that are around in sort of the 80s and the 90s, we'll recall at one stage we had athletes, uh, track athletes, that had the little nasal strips that they would wear to hold their noses open. Yeah. Um, there's only one reason they're doing that. It's performance enhancing. Okay. okay? So, again, all right. So, so we've got, we've got big, big um, emphasis, you know, on, on really some, you know, top tier people in the world when it comes to exercise and sport, making sure the noses are working properly, making sure there's not, there is not mouth breathing. The issue physiologically with mouth breathing, to keep it simple, is that when you breathe through the nose, most of the air goes into the bottom part of your lungs. When you breathe through your mouth, some of that air is diverted to the top part of your lungs. Most of the blood flows through the bottom part of the lungs. So for the air-oxygen interchange for the blood to occur, the air and the blood need to meet up with each other. And if you're mouth breathing, then some of that air never meets the blood, which means that oxygen goes to waste. And that oxygen deficit then starts to lead to pathology. So that's, that's why mouth breathing, you know, in simple terms, is an issue from a, a cardiovascular and respiratory point of view. The other issue is that when you're mouth breathing, that stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which, you're, which is your fight or flight part of your, your system. So it's not unusual that um, we'll, you know, parents will come in, they'll say, oh, is anything else wrong with them? Oh, no, nothing else, just anxiety, but that's got nothing to do with this. And I have to pull them up and say, well, actually, um, 
your children with sleep disordered breathing, which includes mouth breathing, um, yeah, they're actually more prone to having anxiety problems. And hey, while we're at it, they're actually more prone to depression, schizophrenia, bipolar affective disorder, PTSD, ADHD, ADD. It makes autism worse. Um, it increases oppositional uh, defiance um, disorders and the like. Um, so it actually is quite relevant um, to the conversation. They just look at me and go, I never put those things together. I had never realised. And then, uh, so then the other thing that you sort of asked me about is, you know, what if they're um, not mouth breathing all the time? The, 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 in 80 to 90% of, of kids that are mouth breathing, it's because there's some form of physical obstruction to the breathing channels, um, you know, of, of, of nasal breathing, which means either through the nasal passages themselves or behind the nose, there's a space called the post-nasal space, which is where the adenoids are. And then you have to go past the soft palate and then past the tonsils. So any four of those um, things, so the nasal passages, the nasal space, the palate and the tonsils, any four of those things can actually block the airflow to the point that they have to have their mouth open. Um, but some of those things aren't necessarily there all the time, in particular the nasal passage one, because the nasal passage one can be due to hay fever, allergy type things, um, and which can be seasonal. Uh, it can be individual day to day. So it's a tree or, or grass or pollen, for example. Um, depending on the pollen count, if it's a high pollen count, their nose will be snuffed up and they're going to mouth breathe. If it's a low pollen count um, or negligible count, then they may not have much swelling. So they may be able to breathe through their nose better than they could. So, so that's why you can get some variety with things. And then just the, the mere fact that the mouth is open, that positioning yeah. has all sorts of uh, physiological changes with regards to uh, soft tissue bone function. So from a soft tissue point of view um, that, uh, that dropped there, uh, that tends to uh, cause some weakness of the muscles around the throat and, and also some weakness within the muscle, which is the tongue, which then makes the, the musculature of the tube, which is the, you know, the breathing channel, um, not solid, but a little bit weak, which means it can be a little bit flimsy, which means it can start to collapse. We start to get a domino effect where we started with one problem and then we start to get to another problem. The other thing um, is that there's concerns amongst the dental community um, in that having the mouth open with that open posture um, then brings the um, uh, pressure into uh, the system whereby there's tension of the, just having the mouth open um, puts tension on the, the jaws with regards to them wanting to develop outwards. They're not necessarily able to develop outwards uh, adequately. That means the bones are restricted in their growth. And given that the bones are the, the architecture that the soft tissue is attached to, um, basically think of it like the frame of a house. So if you build a big frame um, on a big slab of, of concrete, then you can build a big house. If you have a small frame, well, you've got a small house. Mm -hmm. um, the inside, you know, in this context is the airway. So if you have a small restricted skeletal development, then you're going to have restrictions in terms of where the soft tissue can go. Um, it's not like you can have less tongue um, that's still going to be there. What gets lost is the airway space. So, th so that develops over time as well. So, so we have a host of, of, of consequences um, just by virtue of having the mouth open, irrespective of whether it's technically mouth breathing or not, uh, that, that comes into play. 
So I just want to go back to the topic of anxiety and the breathing, the, yes. the mouth breathing, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system there. I know you said that the mouth breathing may activate the sympathetic nervous system and therefore our fight or flight. Does it go the opposite way? Are people who have anxiety or these other issues more prone, or if a child is, or adult, anyone is stressed on a given day, will they be more likely to mouth breathe because of that, as opposed to it just moving in the opposite direction? Yeah, so it becomes a vicious circle in itself. Uh, because with, with the anxiety, part of the, the, the element that goes with that um, is the sort of natural physiology that's behind anxiety. So historically, anxiety was actually a functional thing um, in, that it, in terms of circumstances. So historically, um, going back a couple of thousand years, um, based on, on where we sort of all sort of initially originated uh, from, was, was the fact that there were predators um, and, and, and we were their prey. Um, so you had to be vigilant and, and, and worried about uh, things in terms of, of, of a, uh, an awareness, um, a sort of vigilance <coughs> with regards to um, um, lions, tigers, etc., um, wanting to basically make you their breakfast. Um, so from that point of view, you know, it was very important um, to have that so that if you heard something, you know, rustling um, in the jungle or, or wherever, or you heard, uh, you know, an animal noise of some sort, um, you did you weren't dismissive of it. You were tuned into it. So it was quite a functional and, and important element for survival uh, to have that. Um, nowadays, uh, we don't have such concerns, so we've replaced those concerns with the, the modern day threats. So the modern day threats, uh, you know, problems at work. You know, problems in our relationships, problems within our families, uh, problems at school, um, you know, very artificial um, constructs with regards to uh, the, um, you know, world that we used to live in. Um, but that part of our brain persists. Um, and what it does in, in some people um, is it transitions into something pathological, um, which we call anxiety. Uh, and, and that's where it becomes dysfunctional. But when it was functional, uh, switching to mouth breathing was important because usually that was in the context of you were running for your life. You were scrambling up a tree or you were scrambling, you know, or a rock or you were yelling and screaming out to others to warn them. Um, so, you know, it, it, it served a physiological role in that circumstance. But that circumstance was very, very brief in its duration. It was a quick moment in time um, where you had to exactly, you know, react uh, quickly and promptly. Um, to be there, you know, for next for the next day. So that's 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 you know how it all sort of draws together um, in terms of the the you know you get anxious, uh, you basically have a sensation of air hunger because your brain is going. Um, you need to fill up your lungs, um, take some big depth breaths, and you can definitely take large volume breaths through your mouth um, to sort of you know preload the lungs and get air in there. Um, but again, it's not sort of going to all the best places, but that, that's a bit more of a complex, you know, respiratory physiology discussion, but just to keep it simple, that's, that's, that you're absolutely right. It's fast. And it's funny. Cause I have noticed that in my own work that, uh, with families where children seem more anxious, I also just, and it's only been anecdotal and I've never understood it, but have heard more mouth breathing amongst that group just in general than others. And I just 
never put two and two together without realizing the functional purpose of mouth breathing with that anxiety. And then the flip side of being anxious and having more mouth breathing from it. So thank you. Um, so let's just, another one that comes up a lot is uh, periodic breathing. Why is that a problem? And again, what's going on? What's happening to that system there for sleep? Yeah, now we're probably going to have a, a little terminology clash here. So you might just need to clarify what you mean by that. So uh, I have heard it as with people where children will breathe, but it's not a regular breath. They're having long gaps in between when they're breathing. So, and it's not like a, an apnea waking of, <gasps> it's just they'll breathe and then they might go 10 seconds without a breath. And then the next time they might go five seconds, then 15 seconds, then, you know, but they're really breathing quite erratically as opposed to um regularly yep. okay. I, I i thought that was what it was i wanted to make sure that we were on the right page so people need to understand how breathing is is regulated in the main state so in the main state the normal way that breathing is regulated is within part of the brain there's a sensor but those sensors are not geared towards oxygen in fact in the brain there's there are there are no oxygen sensors at all what those sensors uh, are there for uh, are to determine the carbon dioxide level within the blood. And the carbon dioxide level uh, also relates then to the acidity of the, of the blood as well. And in simple terms, um, that is a very tightly regulated uh, thing in most people. When people had some form of breathing problem for a while, though, some of these parameters can be reset. And in some people, the sensitivity of the brain sensor to changes in the carbon dioxide becomes blunted rather than uh, being quite uh, quick and responsive. So what that means is that if the carbon dioxide level is changing, uh, for example, if the carbon dioxide level goes up, that means that um, the acidity of the blood is also going to go up, which is not good physiologically. So it's the job of the, that brain sensor to recognize that that's the case. And, and one of the many body responses to that includes changing the rate of breathing. So you actually, if the carbon dioxide was going up, you would breathe a little bit more because that would um, uh, expel some carbon dioxide out of the system and bring the system back into, into balance. And that should be a very quick and reactive thing. But if the brain over time is exposed to these periods of abnormal breathing because of obstruction, then that response um, becomes somewhat blunted because it becomes the new normal. So ha having these changes, you know, is something that the brain learns as must be okay, as opposed to clearly not being the case. So that uh, you have a you know, period of, of, of obstruction, um, the oxygen goes down, but more importantly, the carbon dioxide goes up. The brain should say breathe more, but it's just like, yeah, whatever. And, and then so that the breathing um, you know, becomes longer and longer, even under normal circumstances. So that's, that's one problem uh, that, um, that sort of highlights the fact that, you know, in the mainstay, our carbon dioxide in our blood um, is very tightly regulated. It should be pretty, very, 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 very much the same um, every moment of our life. Um, but it's completely reliant on the brain having that uh, automated and immediate response to adjusting the breathing uh, appropriately. And when that's not the case, uh, that the brain's doing that, uh, then we have, we have again, you know, another issue contributing to breathing disorders. 
Okay. So that's way more serious than I actually thought it was. I just thought it was, you know, not needing enough oxygen that badly or someone who just doesn't breathe as frequently. So um, I, I feel like this is kind of overwhelming at times to realize how serious all this is, given how little it gets talked about or you're told as a parent. I mean, you go in for well checks, no one asks any of these questions. These are not in anything. Um, just two more that I want to go in, unless you have more that I need to add for people, but that I see crop up a lot. Um, one is teeth grinding. Is that an issue at all in young children or is that something to worry about later on? Um, it's, it's a, it is a problem. So teeth, teeth grinding is, is a body stress response. So broad, broadly speaking, I, I, the way I explain this to people is that we've got two main categories of, of, of stress responses. Uh, one is a, a, a psychological one, so something that you're worried about. Uh, and then the other one is a physiological one, which is where you're not maybe worried about it, but your brain is worried about it. And one of the things that the brain worries about at nighttime is the fact that you're not breathing properly. So if you're not breathing properly, oxygen levels drop down, that triggers a few uh, events that, that lead to teeth grinding. So the first thing is sort of the domino that falls is the oxygen level drops because the, the breathing is obstructed. That results in a little bit of a, a stress response, uh, physiologically, uh, physiological stress response, which means you get a little bit of adrenaline surging through your system. That puts up uh, your heart rate and then your blood pressure. Just past the heart in the blood vessels, there's a little uh, measurement device uh, that senses the fact that the blood pressure is spiking. It then sends a message back to the brain that says, hey, blood pressure is going down too low. We need to um, set off you know, the emergency release valve, uh, which is mediated through a nerve called the trigeminal nerve. And that nerve also is the nerve that uh, sends messages to the muscles that move our jaw. So what happens is oxygen goes down, blood pressure goes up, trigeminal nerve gets activated, and that trigeminal nerve is geared towards slowing the heart down. But as a byproduct of that, teeth grinding can start to be an issue too. And when that plays out, um, that, that's sort of you know, how the, the, the sleep disordered breathing and teeth grinding come into play. Now, one of the sort of historical things that happened was that these children were just put down as being anxious and they were just anxious children. They were going to bed with worries. Now, as we sort of highlighted that the problem is that sleep disordered breathing is a breeding ground for anxiety. So I suspect they were observing anxious children, but didn't actually put two and two together because generally speaking, it's very unusual for a child to have anxiety. They, they generally, you know, in terms of life, they, they don't usually have to worry about paying the mortgage they usually don't have to worry about losing their job and they don't have to worry about their girlfriend finding that they've been cheating on them <laughs> so, so you know the life worries that we carry around with adults are not the life worries of children you know often the, the biggest worry the child the child has is you know which toy they're going to play with next which clearly is not anxiety provoking so from, from a from a practical point of view um i think we've made a, a misstep in in in, in observation um, where we've, we've observed the anxiety and then made the association to the teeth grinding uh, being one and the same, where in actual fact there was an intermediary, which was the, the sleep disordered breathing, uh, manifesting in both anxiety and the bruxism, which is the teeth grinding. The reason that teeth grinding is a problem, not just because it's a, a sign of a, you know, potentially a breathing problem, 
but it also over time obviously causes damage to the teeth. Uh, and then parents go, oh, it's just their baby teeth. We don't need to worry. Well, that's all well and good until then they, they realise that the kid is still doing it when they start to lose their baby teeth and the adult teeth start to come through. And then it's sort of like, oh, maybe this was serious. And the other thing that a lot of people don't realise um, is that um, just the mere act of teeth grinding is, is a lot of pressure that's transmitted up into the jaw joint. And over a period of years and years of doing this, that starts to wear down the cartilage in the jaw joint. And uh, over time, people can get arthritis in their jaw joint. So we're starting to see people in their 20s, 30s, 40s that have got arthritis in their jaw joint. So the, the simple mere act of chewing on, on hardish type foods, you know, nuts, meat uh, and the like, um, is actually a real challenge for those people because of the pain that they experience. So there's, there's a, a consequence way, way, way past childhood that, that comes into play. The other thing where this then gets complicated is that there's a couple of other causes uh, of, of the teeth grinding. Uh, another one, uh, probably the second most common cause would be having uh, low iron levels. So, and again, that also is associated with sleep disordered breathing. Uh, because one of the things that happens is that sleep disordered breathing induces an inflammatory environment within the body. So the body is inflamed. One of the consequences of inflammation is that it impairs iron absorption. So the iron levels drop, which then adds to the uh, tiredness that children experience. So that, that's one element, plus then it exacerbates the teeth grinding. The other way that they end up with iron levels is that having sleep disordered breathing impacts on their eating so as a result of that, they tend to avoid the hard foods. So they might, for example, chew on the meat, but they find it hard to swallow it. So they just spit it out. Um, so their nutritional intake of iron um, can be compromised from that point of view. The other thing that uh, then comes into this is having hay fever and allergy. Hay fever and allergy can cause swelling and blockages within the nose and lead to sleep disordered breathing. Hay fever and allergy is an inflammatory disease. So it impairs the iron absorption through that mechanism. Plus the mere act of just having hay fever, it's very irritating and annoying. So there is actually a psychological distress brought about by having hay fever as well. So we start to develop these perfect storm environments of, of, of airway, iron and um, psychological distress. And amongst all of this, the teeth grinding um, shows up as a result of one or, or, or many. So teeth, teeth grinding is actually a bit more of a complicated story. But of, of managing teeth grinding, you know, historically it was like, well, don't worry, they'll outgrow it, which has been proven to be flawed. Uh, and the other ones will just give them a mouth guard so at least they won't cause damage to the teeth. But giving them the mouth guard is a bit like me walking over to a brick wall and hitting my head violently against a brick wall and then someone helping me by putting a pillow between my head and the wall um, without actually really addressing why on earth I went and started hitting my head against that wall in the first place. Um, and trying to address the underlying causes. So teeth grinding should be a, a warning sign to parents of, of potentially a breathing problem, an iron problem, could be a psychological thing as well, but um, you, you've got to make sure that you don't make assumptions and miss, miss things that, that warrant management. I'm going to have to ask here out of purely a selfish reason. I have been a teeth grinder. I've had a mouth guard for, I don't know, I'm in my 40s since I was 15. I think I got it. Um, clearly, no one ever talked to me about any other cause. It was just, here's your mouth guard and be on your way and update it every few years. Do some of these things, I mean, you talk about the different causes for it. Can they start as one cause, but then they persist for another? Or I'm thinking of, 
does it start with like psychology, but then maybe it just becomes, I mean, I hate to use the her- the term habit because I don't think any of these things are just habitual, but could it then become, you know, habitual in the sense of how the body's reacting at night or what happens over time there with this? Yep. Now I'm, I'm going to put my pedantic uh, English teacher um, hat on for a second. <laughs> Um, because you use two words that are not interchangeable. So you described habit and habitual. Um, they actually don't mean the same thing. Um, habitual just means that you're doing something regularly without any indication as to why that's the case. So, for example, uh, brushing your teeth every morning would be habitual. Okay. Um, you do it regularly and routinely. You don't really think about it. You just know that that's what you're supposed to do because just, that's just what you do. Um, whereas habit um, is something that you do um, where there is some sort of underlying cause behind it that's not necessarily um, functional. So um, when it comes to to teeth grinding, um, it's very unusual that it would be done out of habit. It may be habitual, you may be doing it regularly, but it'd be unusual that you'd be doing it for no particular reason. There's there's some underlying physiological, physiological reason that it's happening. Um, and whether that's partly psychological, that's feeding that physiology or not, is you know obviously part of the equation. But one of the problems with these mouth guard uh, splint type things for the teeth grinding um, is that they compromise the airway. So if it's in the situation where it's an airway problem to start with, and they're given uh, one of these uh, normally designed splints for teeth grinding uh, and so forth, that will make the airway problem worse. Which basically guarantees is if the teeth grinding is due to an airway problem and you're making the airway problem worse, the teeth grinding is never going to go away. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of sorts where, um, you know, the, the need for the mouth guard is reinforced by virtue of the fact that the mouth guard makes the breathing worse. So from that point of view, you know, children, adults alike, um, again, you need to make sure there's not a breathing problem. And the most common reason that where adults fall down is they have some form of nasal trauma as a child, um, something that's not necessarily recognised as, as being that significant. But it's significant enough to cause damage and trauma to the nasal septum and put the nasal septum out of position, out of alignment. And then during the few growth phases of childhood, that septum actually becomes more crooked over time. But because it's happening during stages of growth and development, it happens concurrently so it's adjusted to from one day to the next with the slight changes that happen from one day to the next so having that becomes the new normal so it's it's sort of like a sensory amnesia there's no perception that there's a problem because it's developed with the individual over time and and then again you know it's not then necessarily until you know maybe they go and do a yoga class where the teacher's going breathe through your nose and they go i can't do what everyone else is doing Why, why can't i do this and they're absolutely certain there's nothing wrong with their nose. You know, I, I'll see it. You know, say, look, you know, I'll ask a patient, you know, any problems with your nose? They go, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with my nose, but I'm a mouth breather. And they, they just do not connect the two um, to the fact that, well, maybe you're a mouth breather because there is something wrong with your nose. It's just that you don't have an awareness of it. So I think everyone that, that's got teeth grinding problems, you know, adults, children alike, um, there's no downside to getting your breathing and airway checked. You know, it's just one of those bizarre things is, you know, like, why should I go and see an ENT? Why not? You know, yeah. what's the downside? You know, the worst case scenario is they're going to tell you you're okay. The best case scenario is they're going to find a problem that can be fixed and change your life. 
it's, it's, it's a pretty good balance of, of risk and benefit there. I, that is from a personal level, I'll just stop there, but wow, I, a lot to ponder on my own history and things that suddenly all fall into place. Um, but okay. So the last one, before we get into, you know, really outside of just singing ENT, what people should be doing, but is sleep apnea, which sounds like there's almost a mix of all the snoring, the mouth breathing, all this stuff kind of coming into one, but is there something different about it relative to the snoring or anything else that parents should be looking for with respect to apnea in their kids? Yeah, so look, this is probably a good point just to sort of make sure we've got some clarity on definitions and also sort of the, the spectrum of what we're talking about. So it, you know, the simple take home for me- message for parents um, that, that, that is easily retained um, in the big scheme of things, you know, we can make things complicated, but we've got to keep things simple. Go look, for, go look and listen for three things. You're looking for mouth breathing, you're listening for snoring, and you're listening for pauses in the breathing, which is the, the, the apnea. Apnea means without breath. So if your child has any one or three of those, then you've got a problem uh, that is related to breathing with your child. Um, that warrants an ENT review. That's as simple as that. It's, 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 it's as simple as it needs to be. What we're talking about is a condition called sleep-disordered breathing. Um, and it is a spectrum, and we've, we've sort of worked backwards from the spectrum a little bit. Um, but we sort of start now where we're at in terms of obstructive sleep apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea is the top of the tree. And what that means is that the airway compromise is so significant that at times, even though the child, or the adults too, of course, even though the person is trying to breathe, the obstruction is so significant that they cannot actually move any air through past that blockage. So that's um, that side of things. The, the step down from that is what we call upper airways resistance syndrome. That's where there's a restriction to the breathing, but it's not a full obstruction. So that, that manifests by increased respiratory effort to overcome the restriction. And it's enough that they can overcome it that they don't actually stop breathing, but they've had to struggle really hard to maintain their breathing. And that's, that's just as significant in terms of uh, what's going on. So, for example, what that may manifest itself is it may manifest in the child that sweats a lot at night. Um, you know, they're, they're just um, so uh, consumed with the effort of breathing that they're actually getting like a, a workout of sorts that they're getting a sweat um, up as a result. Then we had the snoring and then we had the mouth breathing. So the, the only thing that sort of distinguishes between those, those things is really just the, the degree of obstruction. But, and this is where people have got caught out is because um, people might go and have a sleep study and the sleep study will say, well, they don't have apneas. That does not mean they have normal breathing. That just means they don't have significantly obstructed airways. Again, it's a bit like that t- whole choking thing. You know, it'd be like if I was, again, choking someone and a a bystander came by and said, do you need any help? And I was to say to the person, oh, no, it's okay. They can still breathe. Don't worry about it. Um, That conversation wouldn't happen. Yeah. You know, it just wouldn't happen. That bystander being, you know, a good citizen would intervene and try and save that person from me choking them. Um, But instead we had this sleep study that says basically, oh, it's okay. The person that they're choking um, they're, they're not about to pass out like they do in you know mixed martial arts that type thing. They're not about to pass out, so it's okay. They can keep going. Uh, that's just an absolute nonsense. Um, but that, that's unfortunately the, the advice that, that comes from some of the sleep studies that people have. 
um, that will set them on the wrong course um, because they don't have the sleep apnea, they're okay. That's not necessarily true. So I think that's sort of, you know, also worthwhile for parents to be mindful of um, when they start sort of going onto this journey of exploration of the topic because it gets a lot more complicated. But obviously it's important initially just to keep it simple. So, I mean, thank you. These are huge. And obviously the referral is to an ENT for people that they need to be doing. Are these linked with any other issues in childhood infancy? I think about, you know, at the younger ages, we've hear a lot of talk about tongue ties, lip ties, enlarged tonsils, things like that. Do those play into any of this or are they things that maybe, you know, if you have a child that has a tongue tie, should you be more alert for these breathing issues than if say you didn't? Yep. Okay. So if we go back a little bit from that point, we'll come to that then moving forward. So I guess it's important for, you know, the, the big picture scenario. What are, what are the big causes of airway obstruction in children? By far, it's tonsils and adenoids. You know, they, 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 they are the, the standout things. So tonsils are swellings at the back of the throat on the side walls. Adenoids are swellings at the back of the nose that we talked about earlier in passing. So they are by far the two biggest causes of airway obstruction in children. Okay, everything else beyond that pales to, to lesser significance. Coming up at a, a very strong uh, you know, position otherwise is hay fever and allergy though. Um, and, and that's roughly speaking around about one in six to one in seven children will have some form of hay fever allergy problem. But again, there's a spectrum of severity. Uh, and and uh, some kids that you know have it enough that it causes swelling within the nasal passages that restricts the breathing. So um, that that that's the next thing on the list. And then the next thing that's on the list after that is where the middle portion of the nose called the nasal septum is crooked. So what we call a deviated septum. So those four things: tonsils, adenoids, allergy, septum. They are the big players in this game. Yeah, anything else that comes after that is, is, is a contributing factor, but they are the big things in kids. The thing that complicates this then is the interposition of what the jaws and teeth are like, like we talked about uh, again earlier. Because if the jaw and dental development is restricted, that then restricts the space for the airway itself. So what that means is that you could have normal sized tonsils, but because the jaws are so small, everything's squashed in on itself, those tonsils are actually normal size, but in an airway that's compromised. And the complicating factor with all this is that when we look at children presenting to different clinics, um, if you get a team approach going, you start finding other problems that you might have been oblivious to. So, for example, a child presenting to an ENT clinic with this sleep disordered breathing, if we get our dental colleagues involved and get an orthodontic assessment, roughly speaking, uh, somewhere between around about 40 to 60% of those children will have some form of an orthodontic problem as well, uh, which is a massive overrepresentation of orthodontic issues. Similarly, if a parent is, is, is oblivious to airway problems, but is quite aware of the fact that their child has crooked teeth and, uh, and, and jaws that aren't lining up properly and takes them for an orthodontic assessment, if those children were assessed uh, by, by an ENT in 40 to 80%, of those children, we would find an airway problem. So we have children turning up to different clinics, but unless um, people are astute enough to realize uh, the, the complicating uh, cofactors that are in play here, um, one pathology will be managed and the other one will be missed. 
Um, and the consequence of that overall is that we still have either an orthodontic or an airway problem that persists, which again, within themselves can contribute to an airway and orthodontic problem. So it becomes a different circle. So that, that's why I advocate teamwork and so forth. So with that in mind, we'll come to this tongue and lip tie um, situation. And they are, the, they are the small players in this game in the big scheme of everything. And, and the problem with these conversations is people can be tribal. They sort of say, well, if you believe in sleep disordered breathing, then you have to believe in tongue tie as well. Um, I'm, I'm not in any way religious about anything that's got anything to do with scientific knowledge, because if you believe something, then that means that um, you can't be, you know, educated into something different. You, you've made up your mind and then you've got a, a, a fixed pattern. I'm, I'm, I'm quite malleable. Something new comes along tomorrow. You've got to, you know, when the facts change, you have to change with them. That, that's a reality of, of, of doing this sort of thing. So when tongue ties started to come onto the, onto the scene, it was sort of like, all right, how does this make sense? Now, the, the one area where it does make sense is from an orthodontic point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it makes sense um, because of the way that the jaws and so forth develop. Uh, the tongue seems to have an important role, there, especially in developing the top or the upper jaw. Um, if the tongue, tongue cannot elevate properly, then the jaw doesn't expand properly. Um, and, you know, that may be something that you can assess in a, in a child um, because they can lift their tongue up or not. But we have to realise that the ability to do that stems from how were they born in the first place. So the first time, the point that they might show up is with breastfeeding. Now, one of the big problems we have with tongue ties is, is actually defining what a tongue tie is in the first place. Yeah. We, we don't have an accurate measurement tool. We don't have anything that's precise. What that means is we're relying on, on the education, the experience of the person that's assessing that person. What that means is that we're dealing with humans. What that means is that we have already have human error played into this. Um, so we, we, we don't have a perfect system of assessment, which means we have a whole range of conjecture as to what is a tongue tie in the first place. So it's no wonder that parents are confused because you know, even within those that make the assessment, there's no consistency. So it, it does make for a, a, a difficult playing field of sorts. But we do know that in circumstances where, um, and there's multiple reasons, you know, and, and, and so forth. And I, I'm very, very mindful that there's absolutely no shaming of, of what happens in these conversations. There are perfectly good and legitimate reasons why breastfeeding will not and cannot take place. And it's a very much individual and personal decision. It's one that we strongly advocate for, but it's not one that we are militant about um, to cause the, the, the mother in particular any sort of form of psychological distress. Of course. But we do know that um, breastfeeding up to the age of two significantly reduces orthodontic problems. So if we have a tongue tie, for example, that impairs breastfeeding, that in itself increases the risk of orthodontic issues plus the virtue of the tongue tie itself and the direct consequences potentially on the tongue tie um, feeding into that as well with no pun intended. So, so that's how tongue tie initially comes into it. The, the problem is that people have, got, uh, uh, there's associations and people draw some rather long bows. So we, we, we need to use the word sometimes very judiciously. So sometimes what we would call anatomically a tongue tie, that's sort of between the anatomy and the function, but sometimes what we would observe to be an anatomical tongue tie causes a functional problem. Sometimes that functional problem translates into skeletal development uh, issues. Sometimes those skeletal deficiencies um, lead to compromise of the airway. Um, it, it's not an always and an absolute. 
um, and to um, sort of then have a child that has sleep disordered breathing and for the tunnel vision to be on the tongue tie at the expense of the far more common and the far more prolific causes of sleep disordered breathing is, is really missing the big picture as to what should be dealt with. So it's definitely part of my clinical assessment and my review of children that come in at every age that they come in and see me. But it's, it's, it's very rare with a child with sleep disordered breathing that I'm fixing a tongue tie and nothing else. It's, it's very much it's in the context of there's all these other things going on. So what we're really doing is we're looking at a cake. And, and the end product is, you know, is the process of all the ingredients and the way that they were mixed together and processed and then baked for a certain period of time. That's what gives you the cake. And then what people are doing is saying, well, you know, is it the sugar in the cake? Is it the flour in the cake? It's like, it's the cake. <laughs> right. Thank you. That is so helpful because I do hear so many families worry about these little things and it's so nice to actually have a good explanation that no, you can't get too myopic about what's down there. There are big things, there's things to look at, but it is, it's the whole of it put together that seems to be the matter. So I just want to go, I, I, you've been so patient with me here and I do have the question about a couple more, if you'll bear with me. One is on treatments more generally in the ages, because I know you mentioned, you know, now that you've put the choking analogy out there, I am very much like you want to get in there and get that dealt with. And yet I can tell you just from my experience where I have worked with clients and heard, you know, they mentioned snoring, they mentioned mouth open. And I'm like, yeah, you really need to go see an ENT. And some will go to their doctor, they need referrals and they're not given it because they're told it's not a big enough deal. Many though will get in, but then are told, well, there's nothing we can do until your child is X years of age. And I have heard anywhere from two up to eight or nine years of age that they won't do anything. It sounds to me, given the fact that we're talking about, you know, choking a child, just to go back to that, that's kind of a irresponsible answer or that can't be the answer, I guess, is my thought. So I'd like to hear what the answer should be and what parents should be looking for from their professionals. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I was to have a second life, what, 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 that, what, what I would do, because I understand this topic so well, um, and, and not that I want to advocate for this, but I, I just get so annoyed by it, um, is, is I'd become a, a professional medical consult to a, a big-time big legal firm. Um, and I'd, I'd sit down around the boardroom with the lawyers sitting there looking for their next case, and I'd say, look, we've got 20% of kids out there that can't breathe properly, and their doctors are telling them not to worry about it, and we know that this condition leads to brain damage. You, you, you would just see the smiles on the faces of those lawyers. Um, yep. That would be the grinning Chessier cat of, of, of Alice in Wonderland um, because this would just be, let's put an ad in the paper. Does your child snore? And did you tell you, did your doctor say, don't worry about it? Call us. Um, you, you, you'd be shooting fish in a barrel. Um, so, you know, and I, and I would dread to think that it needs to come to that stage for people to change. But, you know, sometimes that is how change comes about. So the first thing it does is it goes back to what I said. We're talking about people's education um, and knowledge. OK, so so you, if you, you sort of get told one thing, um, that's what tends to stick in, in, in your mind forever in a day. We know that from society and culture. It's why that, you know, for example, and this is not judgmental, this is observation. 
It's why we have different religions that, that, that dominate different countries. It's because within each country, there, there is a certain culture that religion is tied to, which then leads certain beliefs uh, and so forth. Um, medical education is no different. Um, depending on who educates you at the time will then shape your form, you know, form your ideas and, and, and knowledge and so forth. So the first thing I think to reflect on what you've said is that you say, go and see the ENT. Um, I, I think we need to really qualify that um, not every ENT is the same. And, and it, it, it's one of those challenges that people have that I think they really need to work through. So, so again, I'm talking analogy. So if you have a problem with your knee, you would see an orthopedic surgeon. Now, if the orthopedic surgeon on the door says, I am a shoulder specialist, you already know that you're seeing the wrong orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. Okay. If this ENT is an ear specialist, you're already seeing the wrong ENT. Yeah. So you've got to know what sort of ENT they are. Are they an ENT that actually has, um, you know, subspecialty or board certification in paediatrics? Or like every ENT, were they just trained in basic paediatric ENT and they just continue to do that? Um, but they're not really, you know, um, paediatric ENTs. They're ENTs that do paediatrics. And there is a difference. Um, so you've got to be mindful of what sort of ENT are they? You also then need to be mindful of the fact that um, you know, what sort of, you know, education experience are they keeping up to? And then, and I'm very mindful of this, one of the big problems you have in the United States is that your healthcare is directed by your insurance companies. So the insurance companies actually determine and dictate the structure of healthcare to some degree, far more so than, than we have here in, in Australia, for example. So what that means is they put these barriers and rules in place that are really not geared towards clinical medicine, but more towards um, insurance payouts um, and, and trying to sort of create pathways and channels, which are essentially barriers and obstacles to, to get navigating through the system. So, um, so that, that complicates things too. But in, in terms of one thing that you highlighted was, was age, um, that's really easy. The youngest child that I've operated on um, was uh, six months of age. The youngest child I know being operated on was uh, six weeks of age. Oh, wow. So th 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 there is no age barrier um, for that simple reason. We, we know two things from all the research that we aggregate. We know two things. And those two things are that the earlier it starts, the worse off that child is in the long run. And the longer that it is let go, regardless of when it starts, the worse off that child is in the long run. And the time frame um, for age where the worst case scenario of onset is, is under the age of 18 months, where it starts under 18 months of age, they have the worst outcomes. The next age cut off from that is six years of age. Um, so you sort of, you know, the first group under 18 months is the worst. The second worst group is between 18 months and six years of age for age of onset. In terms of duration, regardless of age, duration is six months. Anything longer than six months of having breathing problems, that's where they get bad outcomes. So long story short, you get in early and you get in quick. And just with that six months, does that, is that cumulative? Like when I think about kids with allergies, you talked about allergies being one of the big four that may come and go temporarily. Yeah. 
So look, I mean, obviously there's a dose response curve. You know, the more the, the, the more the airway is obstructed and the longer it's obstructed for consistently, the more the problem. Um, that, you know, then varies if it's sort of an intermittent problem like the hay fever, well, you know, the consequences are not as significant as a permanent, you know, persistent okay. obstruction. But, you know, that doesn't change the fact that we've got a problem. Okay. So tell me, do you work with anyone outside Australia? <laughs> so, so, so the... the, the, the um, I, I, the reason I do what I do is I put everything up there to make it readily accessible. Uh, it's, it, it's not my job to tell people what to do. Um, my, 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 my sort of thing that I'm doing is just sharing the knowledge. How people choose to use that's up to them. Um, we, we, we know that there's a lot of useful information out there that people disregard. We know that because they smoke. We know that because they, they, they drink too much alcohol. We know that because they eat the wrong food. There's no shortage of good information out there. There's just a shortage of good behavior patterns. And those behavior patterns have consequences. So um, I don't need to you know, work with anybody um, because it's all there laid out on the Facebook and the Instagram pages. Um, I put the science there. I put the research there. I put my books out. So you mentioned snore to death. Um, the other one is um, don't ignore the snore. Um, so we've got, got two books out there, you know, resource, you know, that's resources of information that people can then uh, access and then go to their doctor and say, no, I don't accept that answer. And the reason I don't accept that answer is because I've read this book and this book is listing all this science and all this information um, by someone that focuses on this. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. This is, this is not something that I sort of went to a, a weekend course on and, and think I know everything about. And I continue to learn and I continue to progress. So, so there's a huge benefit there that other people can derive because I've done all the hard work. Mm-hmm. Someone just needs to sort of come on and just, just ride my coattails, uh, you know, and, and take advantage of it. Then that's, that's great um, because that means that kids that I will never get to see, never get to help, um, are going to be seen, are going to be helped because people jump on board and, and get it. So, so you know, that's that's particularly, you know, the, with the Snore to Death book. That's why I wrote it so that it was so comprehensible and understandable. Um, and the parents can basically just highlight it and go, no, if it says in this book, you probably don't know anything um, to the degree that's in this book. And unless you know what's in this book, you probably don't know enough to help my child. So that, that's where parents can be sort of, you know, better yes. armed and educated rather than turning up with, I saw on the internet because, you know, I'll tell you now, doctors are going to lose interest real quick. I you know. know. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. So we have the book and I will be sharing in the show notes will be links to the books. And I know you have the Facebook page, which has amazing videos. I can attest to that, that you really should be watching these and they are informative as a parent it is something I've started looking at my kids now when they sleep more to see what's going on. Um, but where else you have a clinic. Can you tell people yep. where they can find you? Where are the other spaces that they can look for you? And we'll be sharing all of these links again in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. So, so there's the, the Facebook pages um, and, and sort of LinkedIn with Instagram as well. Uh, so there's that. Uh, my, my clinic is called ENT Specialists, and we have a, a Facebook page, which is ENT Specialists Australia, uh, which, again, has our clinic details there. So i based in Australia, based in uh, two states. Uh, one is mostly is Queensland, another one's called New South Wales. Um, so if people want to sort of get a bit of a geography education, come and um, learn a bit about Australia, you can go look those things up and, and so forth. 
Uh, I do, you know, back in the day, we used to have these things called aeroplanes that would fly over these things called oceans um, and, and, and do courses and so forth. Um, and, and, and I do those internationally, in particular in the United States, has been in California and Texas um, is, is where I've um, focused my attention just because it's easy for us to fly to. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm very, very open to when the world has, gets a grip of itself and, and, and comes back to some sense of normality. Um, for people to reach out and say, hey, we'd really love for you to come and talk to, you know, our group here in wherever, you know, insert location. I'd love to come. I love traveling. I love meeting new people. I don't care which part of the world it's in. I mean, the United States, Europe, Asia, um, you know, the works. I, I, I just, you know, I just want, want to be in the room with people so they can hear what I've got to say and that they make their own decisions and judgments on what I've got to share. Um, but I know from experience that when, once people have spent a day with me um, as clinicians, when they turn up to their clinics the next day, um, their, their mindset and their paradigms are changed. And, and it's like one of those things, once it's seen, it can never be unseen. And I feel like that's how I feel about what you've just shared with us about the breathing. Just those analogies alone will not leave my mind. And I don't believe they'll leave the minds of anyone listening because it is a whole new framework of, of looking at this in a new way. So thank you so much, David. This has been, I mean, enlightening, terrifying, um, but hopeful too. I, I do love that you have the information out there and I do think, I hope people will be able to access it and then advocate for themselves to the best of their capacity with their doctors and that, you know, they live in places where they can have access to specialists who have the knowledge or at least part of the knowledge that you seem to have surrounding this. So thank you so much for being with me. And like I said, we will have all this up on the show notes. So just look below and you'll be able to see all of the different books, resources, uh, social media sites and everything from David here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Tracy. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you found it as enlightening and informative as I did. Join me next week when I talk to Michelle Henning, one of the authors of Grow Healthy Babies, the evidence-based guide to a healthy pregnancy and reducing your child's risk of asthma, eczema, and allergies. It should be no surprise to anyone, there is so much going on before our babies are even born, and knowing as much as we can can really help make a difference. So join me next week, and in the meantime, happy parenting.